This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8 through 11. You are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? We're starting off our read-through in Genesis 1. There are many things to discuss, from the clearly constructed literary, poetic, and aural devices the authors employ, to the ever-disassociated thesis that the Bible is proposing. This is not an origin story or a history text. It is the abstract and thesis of the entire biblical message. It's a big deal. Let us treat it carefully and allow it to shape our understanding, rather than forcing our own ideas onto it. The Bible is its own reference, and we will do our best to make that clear. So with that said, we'll go ahead and begin our read. Uh, we're starting with the Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. Uh, we're reading out of the ESV. Nothing particularly special about that version of the Bible. Uh, that's just what we have handy with us right now, and the language is up-to-date and easy to understand. So it's just it just works for, for what we're doing right now. So um, yeah, I'll go ahead and start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So already here, even in this first few paragraphs of the Bible, there's a lot to unpack with the original Hebrew. When we listen to this in English, we might not think too much of it. I mean, this seems pretty straightforward to us. Um, But I would invite us to look a little deeper because that's something that becomes really apparent when you start to study Hebrew, even uh, at a very elementary level. I mean, Rowdy and I are by no means experts in, in Hebrew, but even from just like a little bit of study, you can see a lot of depth and a lot of meaning that uh, gets kind of lost in, in translation. So one thing is the word that they use uh, for beginning. The, the, the original is bereshit, which uh, basically means at the head of or in the head of. Uh, so the the word for head in Hebrew is rosh, which is where we get the rashit, the ba part of it, the, you know, of, of bereshit, the, the first part, the ba, that's uh, a preposition. So that's, you know, our in, for example, for in the beginning. 
Um, but Rosh means head, and that's important for a couple of reasons. Uh, for one, this has the connotation of this sentence being the foundation point, the foundation of what we're about to read. So to put it in other words, Genesis 1.1 is the title of Scripture. That's how it's functioning. And uh, this, this may seem a little weird if we're used to just the English read of this, because it's, not, it's never presented that way in our translations of the Bible. It's always presented as the first sentence of a paragraph. But this, is, this seems to be removed from the rest of uh, the, the story. It, it, it seems to have its, its own place as the title, and, and we'll get more into that as this episode progresses and, and why uh, we think that, uh, you know, of course, this isn't something that we've come up with either. This, is, uh, this has been talked about by several biblical scholars, um, so it's, it's something that's out there. Um, but that's an important thing to understand, especially when we start talking about the functionality of the other words in this sentence. So um, the word that gets translated to create uh, in Hebrew is bara, and Rowdy's going to go through all of the inner meanings that that word has in, in terms of its functionality. And so there's a lot to it with that. So uh, back to Rosh it being the head, the foundation, a good way to remember Rosh for people that, you know, need, need some more examples like I do. Like, it's hard for me to just remember things if I can't apply it anywhere. Um, some good I ways to remember it would be, uh, like, if there's any Batman fans out there, the character Ra's al Ghul, he's a Batman villain. Uh, his name in Arabic means uh, head of the demon of course, Arabic and Hebrew are closely related uh, Semitic languages. So you can hear the connection between Raz and Rosh. Um, and then there's also the, the Hebrew New Year, which is Rosh Hashanah, which means head of the year. And so, um, yeah, this has a practical application as well. Um, and then we'll, we'll also see it used later on in the Bible when it's talking about the head of an army, It'll, ta- it'll say Rosh, or the starting points of the four rivers that water the Garden of Eden later on. Uh, when it introduces those rivers, it'll say, like, the head of the Rosh of, you know, this river is yada, yada, yada. Um, and so it's, it's a word that appears later on. But what I want to stress firmly from this point is that Rosh, that, that better sheet, has more of a meaning of foundation, of head, more than it has uh, just our English understanding of what a beginning is. Because when we read this, we read uh, creation ex nihilo, or we read like unmoved mover, or maybe like a big bang scenario. And while, you know, this, the point of this podcast isn't to say that your theology is wrong or our theology is wrong or whatever. Uh, It's just saying that when the original hearers heard this verse, they were not thinking in terms of creation ex nihilo or uh, the unmoved mover, like Aristotle's unmoved mover, or, you know, anything philosophical like that. They had a very practical hearing of it because they heard it at a time before 
any of these theological ideas were formulated and laid out. And so that's just something important to understand. One last note on Roche head. Um, this gets translated pretty effectively in the Greek. Uh, so in the Septuagint, the beginning of Genesis is uh, inarhi, which is uh, in the, you could say, like in the uh, preeminent, you know, uh, place and time, so to speak. And so it, it has this this uh, broad understanding of beginning, but arhi in Greek means chief, and so you can see the connection that it has with head. It doesn't literally mean head in Greek. Greek has a, a, another word for head, but it it serves the same purpose, you know. So like in Greek society, uh, like an, an archpriest, right? It uses that word arhi. An archpriest is the highest priest, or an archangel is the highest angel. So you can see that idea of a preliminary place. And this is the precise wording that the Septuagint uses. And then, of course, the the New Testament uses it as well with the Gospel of Mark. Mark 1.1 uses arhi when it's talking about the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then John 1.1 uses arhi when it's talking about uh, in the beginning was the Word and things of that nature. So this, this is, this is a, a wording and an understanding that you can see um, a, applied to later biblical writings as well. But I just wanted to, to spend a little bit of time on that because it is foundational and it's very important towards what we're going to be talking about later. And I'm sure that this sounds weird to some of you, which makes sense because it sounded really weird to me when I first heard it. But, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that if you spend a little bit of time with us and you hear us out a little bit and you hear uh, our, our reasoning for for why we're presenting it in this way that it'll start to make sense. So we can hear in this Hebrew word rosh, and even in the Greek arhi, there is a lot of meaning wrapped up in it, and, and, and there's evidence to that because we, we heard how Blaze talked about all the different uses of the words. The reader and hearer of the original text as it was delivered would understand all of these meanings because they are familiar with the word. We have to scratch and claw and make a 30-minute podcast uh, because we are not those people and we're trying to understand how it was originally delivered. So like Blaze demonstrated, we, we heard that Rosh and Arhi carry a lot of different meanings. And when this text was originally delivered, the hearer or reader of the text would understand all of them. They would read Bereshit and they would understand that this first verse and this first book is functioning as an authoritative head and also an explanatory head. Um, not explanatory in the sense of explaining where everything came from. Remember we said already this is not a history book. Uh, this is not an explanation of where the people came from. It is a character introduction of God. Yes. So Genesis 1 gives the reader an example of authority to refer back to as they continue to go through the scriptures to understand God as he continues to reveal himself through the scriptures. So it is the authority and it is where we begin. The next word in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word bara. And this word bara is what we often render as create uh, or he created. So while that is not an incorrect translation, it doesn't get across the full nuanced meaning of the Hebrew. 
So very simply, bara is used anytime God is making something functional. Uh, it is a action of creating, but it's wrapped up all in this idea of functionality. So God is creating something within a totality of functionality, if you will. So if you look at uh, other similar words in other Semitic languages, you see a connection to this idea of cutting fabric, um, or maybe even choosing. The uh, direct lexical gloss of this word is to choose, and that's kind of a, a weird idea for us as English hearers because we're so familiar with our vanilla idea of create. However, this idea isn't totally lost on us, um, because if I were to tell you that an artist chooses what he is creating when he makes a painting, you probably understand exactly what I'm talking about. So think of it like that. Uh, it has a little bit to do with, with cutting out with intention to use the thing that you cut. It has a little bit to do with choosing uh, as an artist chooses to create a particular piece on a blank canvas. The canvas isn't functioning as anything beforehand, but he is choosing the painting for the canvas. So then the canvas functions as the painting that the artist has created. So I know that a lot of those ideas might be a little bit unfamiliar to some of you as they are applied here in Genesis 1.1, but it contributes to, like I said, a totality of function in this word. Um, and that's just kind of the Hebrew language. This is a literary language. Um, so these type of things will continue to, to come up when we come across them. So stick with us, and I hope with Barah, you get a better idea, and you can, you can remember how it's being used here so that we can apply it whenever we see it again. Another interesting point uh, that I just want to mention is that in the word Bereshit, this idea of God creating and making functional this thing that he has chosen to be, it is emphasized and hammered into the, the reader or the listener in these first two words, the first three letters of the word Bereshit, if you extract them from the text and only look at those first three letters, those are the same three letters for the word bara. So at first glance, if you're not entirely familiar with Hebrew, which even the original readers would not have been, because a lot of these words are not connected to a lot of other Semitic languages. They're made up. <laughs> they seem made up. They came out of nowhere. So even these readers, maybe they spoke Aramaic, which was the common vernacular of the people of the Middle East at that time. Mm -hmm. They're reading this, and there are a lot of words that are made up. So they have to kind of, they have to learn a little bit, just like we're learning right now. When they first read it, they're seeing created, created. And then they look a little closer, and they're like, oh, okay, in the beginning, created. So that's just an interesting thing to point out. Uh, Keep these things in mind as we yeah. continue to bring them up because they, they contribute to a totality that we're trying to communicate. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's, that's another point because um, uh, that, that's something that, that, I, that I don't think a lot of people think about naturally. I mean, it's not anybody's fault. It's just not something that ever comes up. But, um, you know, there's this concept in ancient literature of a literary language that is different than the spoken language. And, you know, that's the case with Sanskrit, if you're familiar with, uh, like, Eastern religious literature. But that's certainly, certainly true of Hebrew, uh, in, in that 
when when you study the Hebrew of the Bible, it it's it's a written language. It there, there, there's there's not enough to it to be a spoken language. In fact, that that was a big uh, obstacle when in like the 19th century when they were uh, trying to revitalize Hebrew as a spoken language and trying to to make it a language that would fit everyday speech. It was really challenging. Um, and, and modern Hebrew um, had to make a lot of changes to its grammar and vocabulary and things of that nature because it just it wasn't constructed uh, to be a spoken language. And that's something that's really important to understand. Again, that's something that might be kind of weird to a lot of people, but, but we'll talk more about all of that. And, and again, ho- hopefully, you know, at, at some point we'll we'll make a good enough case to where like that'll start to make sense. Cause again, like, like a lot of this stuff seems kind of weird. We just kind of expect that, um, you know, the biblical authors were going around speaking Hebrew to each other and they weren't, you know, Hebrew as it appears in the Bible is strictly a, uh, a literary language. And the, the, the only, the only way I can really describe it in a modern sense that might be relatable would be like, like Dr. Seuss almost because Dr. Seuss used or like kind of created his own literary language because we don't speak in Dr. Seussisms, but it makes total sense with the stories that he's <laughs> telling, right? Yeah. It makes total sense in the books. But um but yeah, I mean like like but but that that's that's the interesting thing though is that when Dr. Seuss wrote his books, they're written in a way where you can still understand it even if the words are foreign, even if the words are made up because it, it's written within a cultural English-speaking context. Whereas the Bible, you know, you could say it's kind of a similar thing. It's written within the context of the ancient Near East, within people living in an environment where the lingua franca is Aramaic. And so they're going to understand the Bible as it's read out to them, but they're going to hear words that are not used, uh, you know, in, in, in everyday speech. They're, they're constructed specifically to give the stories and to give the literature functionality. Absolutely. So continuing in the text, the next thing we hear is that God makes the earth. Uh, and then an important thing to notice here is that God does not make the waters. The waters yeah. <laughs> are already present. So we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Where did the waters come from? Uh, Doesn't matter. We don't know. Um, We, as modern hearers, would like to read into this Mm -hmm. text the idea that, oh, God, he just, uh, he created the waters off camera. No, no, that's not there. Just submit to the text. The waters were there. The fact that the waters were there serve a function. Right. Uh, and we'll come to see why. Uh, to support that idea, uh, I'd like to, again, point to the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, we hear the word ha'aretz, where we get the earth, how we render it. We render it as the earth. There's a different word for earth that we'll be introduced to that has a very important literary function that we'll go into much detail about when we get there, and that is adama. Mm-hmm. But here it is Haaretz. It is referring to the dry land, uh, the place that God sprouts up vegetation to produce seed. It is not referring to our modern idea of 
the earth as a globe, which of course would include the seas and the waters, God hasn't made the seas yet. Uh, the waters as they are here present in the first five verses of Genesis are very different than um, the waters that are the seas because the seas have a function. These waters are without function. And that is part of the bara. God is creating the heavens and the earth. He created those things to have function. The water is already there as this ominous thing. We hear that the earth was without form and void. The Hebrew is tohu vabohu. Uh, that word tohu is often rendered as confusion or unreality, uh, non-existence. Bohu just means emptiness. So we're sort of getting a foreshadowing of what God is going to use the earth for, what it will function as. It'll be a place that is formed because right now it's formless. So we get the idea God is going to form it. Uh, and it's bohu here because it's empty. He's going to, he's going to fill it with the living things. So uh, in, another interesting thing in the Hebrew, the word tohu comes right before we are introduced to the word tehom. Tehom, which is the deep uh, Anybody who's reading this or hearing it would understand the deep to be the abysmal, ominous seas. So the authors are trying to get across this this ominous idea of the deep. Um, yeah, it's it's meant to be scary, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and and again, we're not talking about historicity, but a lot of these ideas come from the chaos comp stories. Exactly. They would they would have context for these things. They would know the the ominousness of these things, and then it's beautifully. Uh, juxtaposed with this next, uh, the second half of verse two, where it says, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The word there is mayim, which is the same word mayim used for uh, the waters that God makes the seas. It's the, the water that, that uh, waters life and brings forth fruit. It feeds the trees. Uh, it helps vegetation grow. So mayim is positive. So we hear of darkness being over the face of the deep, the tahom. And then we hear the spirit of God, the mighty wind of God, the ruach of God is resting over the face of the waters. So we're given this ominous, mysterious image, but God is in control of it all. In fact, he is so in control, he is resting. He is brooding. He's preparing to give this formless, unreality, confused thing that he has made or created, I should say, function. He's preparing to give it function. Yeah, and again, that takes us back to what I was talking about earlier, where the first sentence of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If we think about it in terms of what we've already heard, with bara meaning to make things functional, I mean, basically, it's God is making functional the heavens and the earth, basically everything. God makes everything functional is, is a way that you could translate that after hearing the nuances of, of all these words, which is why we call it the, the title of Scripture, because that is the statement that it makes, and then, and then everything else is, is showing us how that is the case, and, and that's, that's the role of these early chapters of Genesis. So in other words, the first creation account which is the, the creation account that takes place from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-4, it's not only about God creating our ordered world. 
It's also about how he gives it functionality. That is the preeminent reason for why it's there. And so this also brings us to another point that these uncreated things that, that the Bible is talking about, the waters, the darkness, again, we can't think of these in terms of, you know, what we would think of as like literal scientific realities. These are characters in the story. Right. These aren't these aren't chapters. These are these are the characters that will continue to play a role in the right. story. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're characters just as much as as the humans are or anything like that. Um and what's what's interesting, you know, is that like, you know, in these ancient societies, night was very scary. I mean, for us night isn't very scary because we we have uh lamp lights and, you know, whatever, you know, we we can go home and it, turn the light on. Um, but darkness is a very scary thing. But what's really interesting is that God does not get rid of the darkness, but he harnesses control over it. He creates the light so that the darkness can't just run amok, right? It's controlled by God. Now, God can release it. That's a very important aspect of this whole thing. And we see that in particular with the waters, which is why, again, I'm talking about the waters not as... A, a scientific way that, you know, water is a chemical compound made up of hydrogen and oxygen. No, no, that's that's not what we're talking about, right? We're talking about the primordial waters, this, this concept of a chaotic force, which is what water really is to ancient people, which is why they're used as such a destructive force in the Bible, right? So we have the story of the flood, and we have the, the, the waters of the Red Sea crashing on the Egyptians. Again, it's no coincidence that, you know, God separates the waters from the waters and lets the dry land appear for the Israelites to cross over into the Red Sea. I mean, that, that story is a callback to what's going on in these early chapters of Genesis, right? It's, it's a perfect image because he lets the dry land appear and separates the waters for the Israelites. But then when the Egyptians try to cross, then he allows that those primordial waters to consume them. He allows the, the land to turn to us to return into a state of tohu wabohu, which comes up funny enough in the prophets, this exact same terminology. And the time where it's literally said verbatim, tohu abohu, happens in Jeremiah 4.23. And in Jeremiah 4.23, the context is that Jeremiah is lamenting the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem by the Assyrians. Again, you know, if you're familiar with just broadly the biblical story, this is a direct punishment by God for the simple fact that the Torah was not heeded. Again, you know, the, we, we, we see that when God's Torah is not heeded, that he has the power to unleash these forces. And so uh, Jeremiah 4.23 goes like this, I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void. That's our tohu abohu. And to the heavens, they had no light. And so the darkness is back, and 
there's Tohu Wabohu again. I mean, that is a frightening image. God has returned his creation to the state of confusion, of wasteland, of the abyss, which the Tehom, the Greek translation of that is abyssu. That is where we get the word abyss. So it's all there. And that's a warning to us as much as it's a comfort as well, because the comforting thing is, is that God is in control of everything. And we'll see that again later on in the biblical stories where God is in control of the surrounding armies, right? Israel should feel secure because God is in control of the Babylonian army and the Philistine army and the Edomites and, you know, whatever, insert Israelites enemy here, whatever, you know, God always has control over them. But in Israel's pride, right, they, 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 don't, they don't understand that. You know, they're, they're, they're too prideful of that. Again, you see this consistently throughout the scriptures. And so this is an important point that it's making here. And that concludes our first episode of the Tell Me This Story podcast. Join us again next week as we continue our conversation over the title of scripture. God bless you all. Tree, which is planted by the stream.